Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Welcome to Military Network Radio this morning. We are so glad that you have joined us. Today's discussion is going to be one that I don't see how it doesn't touch every single member of the military family and those who love them. It's called Relationships, Traditions, and Adventures in the Military Family. We'll be talking to two guests. Our first segment is returning guest, Dr. Paul Quinnett, who has been on with us as head of the QPR Institute and an Army veteran and very well versed in all things military as well as a clinical psychologist. In our second segment, we will have Catherine Basham from the Smith College School of Social Work and she will also be talking about relationships, and we are just delighted to have you. Paul, welcome to the program. Well, thank you very much, Linda. Glad to be here. I am, too. I also want to let you know we have Jason McNamara as our co-host today, and while Paul is calling in from a cabin in the woods, I'm quite envious, actually. Jason, you're calling in from your desk at work? That's right. I'm here in Chicago. <laughs> the, the urban woods, if you will. There we go. The urban woods. Perfect. Paul, welcome back to the radio program. And we are very pleased that you're here to help us close out what has been a really strong month in terms of talking about some very difficult topics from suicide prevention, mental health access, to resilience, to all the things that make us who we are and what we can do to help one another and connection and communication and purpose. And I loved when you wrote me that you wanted to talk about traditions in the military and how it affects relationships and why adventures are important. So perhaps I will just turn this right to you and say, tell me more. <laughs> well, I was hoping to get a question that I could take off. But <laughs> I, I, uh, uh, I think a lot of people, you know, go into the military, as I did, you know, looking for adventure and things that could never happen in my hometown uh, I was very lucky in that I, uh, when I got in the service, I was, uh, they used some kind of process to decide what you're good at, because I didn't know <laughs> when I, when <laughs> I joined were? the service. Yeah, and I, and uh, so we went through a number of tests and so forth, and I was eventually selected to serve in the Army Security Agency, uh, which is now the NSA, and uh, so I, I, and I was sent to, uh, advanced training, uh, met a lot of very interesting people I would never have met in my life, uh, who many of whom became sort of lifelong friends because we, we ended up training together. And then because of our uh, outcomes, as it were, in the training classes, those of us who were at the top end of the class could select where to go. So seven of us elected to go uh, to Asia, uh, to, to a station there. And so we, we had this training uh, event, and then we had an opportunity to travel uh, together and to work together for two more years. And uh, I, I still look back on that phase of my young life as something that would never have happened without the uh, opportunities offered me through the military and through, um, I guess, some of my own gifts coming to bear, learning what I was capable of doing, um, 
And, of course, for me, that was at the time when it enabled the uh, GI Bill to kick in after I was discharged and was able then to go on to college and, um, you know, enjoy a whole other career. So I'm just talking about, I guess, why why young people join the service, and I certainly think that's one of them. Uh, uh, it was a different time. Uh, that was many years ago. Um, and now they live such uh, compressed lives. There's, the the, the the way the military operates now is quite different, I think, than it was then. And certainly in my father's time, it was in, it was served in World War II. So um, <clears throat> you make friends, and you, for men, you know, the safest thing to do is make friends and keep your old friends and build mm-hmm. these long-term relationships with people that you care about and who care about you. And that's one of the key protective factors uh, against suicide, particularly in men. In women as well, but particularly in men. So we embrace those and want to honor those and and make it possible for those those connections over time to to persist. You know, Paul, I think that I've asked this on several shows and I get such varied answers, so I, I will give you a question at this point. Do you feel that the Internet, Facebook, all the social media has made it easier or more challenging to connect on a, on a meaningful basis. Certainly you can connect very easily and rapidly, but does it help or neutral in terms of maintaining the meaningful portions of the relationships you may have made early in the military? You know, that's a very, very good question. And I frankly don't know the, you know, uh, I don't have a scientifically informed answer mm-hmm. in the sense that the there, the things that are so different now than they were 50 years ago, for example, is there wasn't ready communication between soldiers and their families. You know, they didn't go out to work one day or go into a firefight and and come back to base that night and be talking to their family. That simply didn't happen. That that was the only correspondence was through the mail, and mail call was always the highlight of the week when, you know, the company or platoon was you know, call together and then the mail was passed out. You've mm-hmm. seen it in old World War II films. But that was a moment when you got this sort of connection from family. Uh, and, and, and we always felt bad for soldiers who didn't have any mail. Okay, right. that, was always, that was always a sad moment. Uh, so people would share their, you know, cookies or brownies or whatever came in the mail uh, because this is kind of your second family. But, but I really don't know. I know that I use... Um, uh, I'm in constant contact with a, with a group of men that I fish with, and and you know we we correspond throughout the week often. And I watch my sons, and they also have these very uh, positive networks. Some of them face to face, and some of them uh, through the internet. Uh, generally speaking, you know, staying connected is a, is a very helpful thing. But I also know that. That there's there are real stresses put into this sort of constant contact mm-hmm. with people. You know, you, if you're if you're a, a spouse back in the states with the kids and you're talking to your your loved one in a you know some duty command out there and you can hear gunshots in the background, that cannot be comforting. You know that right. that that's got to be very very scary. And so. I don't think the I don't think all the data are in on this. I, I know that it's important and that it's highly useful to be able to have this kind of contact 
And we know from some of our own experience in doing suicide prevention work that lives can be saved using the you know techniques that we've developed uh, by via the internet. I've had a corresponds with a fellow in Sweden who was using our approach with a friend of his in Thailand, and he did the whole intervention on in text, uh, and, uh, and sent me a copy of it and how it worked and and you know so forth. So I, it's very difficult to to have the good answers for that question. Well, I agree with you. We had on um, a guest a while ago who was talking about. Um, an experience of moral injury, and he pulled together his old squad on Facebook, and they really healed together as they spoke about what was not spoken about. And Jason, I'm going to have to pull you in at this point. You are of this generation that has deployed and is constantly connected. How do you think the means of connection now, helpful, harmful, somewhere in between? Uh, you know, I think it's a, a double-edged sword, actually. I, um, you know, having gone to war in 2003, it was sort of um, just the start of social media really plugging itself into our lives, right? And, um, like, when we all got deployed, we weren't using digital cameras and those such. We were still using disposable cameras and Ziploc bags, and some had their personal cameras. So it was just getting to the point where, those pieces were starting to come into one device, like an iPhone, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, So I found social media on the back end of that to help me connect with folks that I had lost contact with. A lot of these guys that I deployed with, um, you know, Facebook and the like really helped me reconnect with them. But interestingly enough, um, this past summer, I've actually unplugged from uh, social media. So I'm actually no longer, yeah, I'm actually no longer on Facebook. And so um, what I found over time was that, my interactions with my colleagues from the military were less valuable because visually I was seeing what was happening in their lives and I could like a picture or comment on something, but I wasn't really involved in such a way. Right. And so now what I do is, um, I, I tend to, when I think about somebody, I tend to reach out to them, either text message them or call them. And even my Marine Corps buddies, um, it's still the same way. So I was able to reconnect with them, get their personal information, um, maintain some connectivity through social media. But now that I've unplugged, um, I, you know, I have more in-depth conversations with them. I have more candid conversations with them. Um, they're sending me pictures via email or via text message versus having to look at their social media page. And there's, there's almost a disconnect when you're looking at someone's social media page because you feel like you're connected to them in such a way where you're seeing what's happening in their life. But the reverse of that is really happening. So you're not in their life and you're not really participating in it. You're just sort of on the peripheral looking in. And at least for me, the meaningful relationships that I want to have, especially those that I've served with my entire Marine Corps career, um, I really genuinely care about them. I want to know how their babies are doing, how their husbands and wives are doing, mm-hmm. um, all those pieces. So I think it's a double-edged sword, and I think you have to balance that out. And I, the more I talk to people about social media, um, the more that I see that they're sort of um, throttling, if you will, uh, the usage of it. Because it is becoming such a, a valuable tool, but it's also taking over parts of their life. <laughs> oh, you are, you are saying a mouthful there. It, it honestly is a time sucker. Yep. In just physical time. But the other thing is when you present on 
Facebook, you're usually presenting your best face. And I've had um, many young people talk to me about the fact that they put up the good stuff so no one sees the bad stuff. And after the break, Paul, I'd love it if we could come back to that with your work. Because I think when we put masks on, that it often does block what we really are feeling. We aren't having that high connection. It is the uh, more arm's length relationship, and it's very selective. It's like saying to someone, how are you? And they say, fine. But they're really not fine. And if you were talking to them on the phone, they may give you a more qualified answer. So at any rate, I think that this is a very interesting topic, and connection is so important in positive mental health. Thank you both for your comments. And we will be right back after this commercial break. I absolutely am delighted that we have such an open discussion today. You're listening to Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back. And we'll be right back after these short messages. Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Before the break, we were talking about the effects of being able to communicate on social media to reach people that we know and love, stay in uh, connection and communication with Versus what Jason was talking about when he's now detaching from that largely as an individual and reaching out and having more in-depth phone calls and where you receive a few more feedback um, tips as you're listening to someone's tone of voice, how they say it, the hesitations, allowing you to listen more carefully. Paul, in your role as a clinical psychologist and also with the positive mental health behaviors and outlooks. Can you address what you feel are some of the 
parameters that are limiting our communication or, or is it purposeful that we're making things at arm's length these days? Is the world too much with us? I realize that's a lengthy, multi-purpose <laughs> question, but I want you to feel free to go wherever you'd like with All any right. of those points. Well, I, I think the, uh, the the foundation of all solid human communication and support is learning how to listen, and it's called active listening, and it's a small skill set, but it, as we used to train our psychology interns, you know, how, how do you become a good therapist? And my my short answer was shut up and listen, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and learn everything you can. Be, become the patient student so that you can make some attempt to experience their life as they're experiencing it. And this this advice has got to be there for all therapists who, who without any military background or training are trying to help our veterans. They, they really do have to become a student of the person they're trying to help. Uh, that's kind of rule one, I guess. And, and, and I just wanted to kind of sidetrack a bit and say that I'm, I'm a big believer in sort of how mankind came to be who we are and that the invention of this technology and all this rapid communication and instant sort of, uh, uh, feedback and information. I find it lovely, but I must say that I had this summer that I had a group of uh, Marine Corps, uh, their ROTC students, one of whom went to, uh, just finished officer training school. But I, one of them is uh, dating my granddaughter. And so I invited these young men to come up to the cabin. And uh, I live in the north woods of Idaho, and there's a, a kind of a rustic, uh, a rough campsite across the road down by the river. And I invited them to, you know, put up their tents and camp out for most of a week here. And, you know, we have a man cave, and, and ladies are welcome and so forth. But I can tell you something happened during that week, or five days, I think it was, among these young men. They were hiking. They were practically, we have a shooting range here. They were shooting. They were having a campfire. They were, you know, drinking some beer. And they. I'm told through my grapevine, through my granddaughter, that these young men now are are going into their careers in the military, and, and yet they're all referencing back to this one event, these campfires they had here, this time they had together, the kind of jokes and stories and all of that. And and I don't think you can replicate that online. That simply is not, you just can't do that. You can't put yourself in nature and have these male bonds develop in any way, any setting but that. Uh, <clears throat> and so, and I had it this week, I just had a group of uh, hunters, uh, bow hunting elk here, two of whom were army surgeons. And this little tight group has been doing this for years. They happen to come here because one of them is a friend of mine. But I can see this sort of um, essential sort of nature setting with face-to-face communication and trials and tribulations and working together. You know, hunting is is very similar to other kinds of male endeavors where you have to plan and coordinate and time things and use hand signals and all that. So I'm just saying, I don't think you can replicate that online. I don't care how hard anybody tries. You know, I, I tend to agree with you, and I'm noticing that some of the nonprofits are really taking that whole concept to heart. Um, Jason was talking on the break how important it is for most organizations to be able to reach out via social media. So that's a good thing. But I do know that there's also, for example, Team Rubicon, when they're on one of their uh, intense missions, whether it's tornado or Haiti or um, floods or hurricanes, whatever it might be, each night they gather as a group and they talk. 
mm-hmm. uh, usually with an, an embedded uh, medic psychologist, and they do almost a debrief at the end of each day because it is, as you mentioned, something that allows the true connection, especially in a close team environment where you're undergoing a lot of stress as well. Yours is a delightful uh, example of the importance of face-to-face um, communication, which is why a lot of these veterans' retreats and things are so popular. It's just you wish you could continue that on an ongoing basis, but real life does intrude. Well, the, there's actually research on what I, I call it the power of the campfire. Mm-hmm. Studies of primitive peoples show that their conversations during the workday are about tasks and finances and what's going on with the crop and hunting and all whatever that's but as soon as the sun goes down the campfire starts up 80 percent of the conversation shifts to storytelling relationships what happened you know when i went out hunting the bear and the bear almost got me and that sort of debriefing has been done for centuries you know sitting around the campfire and talking about the important things in life. And and, and I, if everybody could have a nice campfire like you just described, where you get to talk about what happened that day mm-hmm. and and stories from the past and the elders get a chance to talk and, uh, and the kids get to sit and listen and learn these invaluable lessons about how life is lived and how we learn to protect one another and deal with the enemy and all of that. So. It's interesting. So the... You know, we were uh, talking in the break and talking about how, um, like, my organization has a pretty active, um, you know, relationship with a lot of our followers on on social media, and we oftentimes have a lot of veterans that reach out to us via social media. Um, you know, how do you, you know, so so from the organizational perspective, you know, we're very plugged in socially um, to the virtual community. Um, you know, from a personal perspective, I have tended to you know step away from that environment. But how do you take um, those veterans or those military members that are so accustomed to, you know, being plugged in socially to this internet space, and then bring them into an environment like you're talking about. You know, what you're talking about sounds like a great weekend to me, <laughs> right? But but I could, yeah. easily, I, I could easily see how maybe the the more virtually connected um, younger generations of, of military members and veterans may find that to be not necessarily um, appealing in the same light, if you will. Jason, it's funny where he is. You can't be connected. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's real. They they know going in that it, it's that option. But I think you bring up a good point that some people are too reliant. Uh, they're almost addicted to their phone. People have talked about having cyber free Sundays or whatever it might be, because you can become so connected to a, a little device in your hand. And so, Paul, can you address that? Well, it's true where we do have where I live, and that's in, you know, it's a very, I think I told you earlier, the little village up the river, 13 miles has 17 people, and downriver about 10 miles has about 60 people, and that's it for the, for the whole area. There is no cell service here. You can get satellite service. And when when guests come and stay, you know they burn our bandwidth through, you know through downloads through our Wi-Fi system. But but unless you go to the top of a mountain, you can't get cell service here. And and most people seem pretty pretty okay with that. They kind of like that. Um, but in terms of the local 
the local uh, you know environment here in terms of friends and so forth, you very quickly get to know everybody in the valley, uh, pretty much everybody. There's one tavern in you know in 60 miles, so you know <laughs> if you're going to go out and meet people, it's all going to be face to face. You're not going to meet them any other way. And you know the the sheriff comes through once a week, and you get to know him in the second week, and pretty soon you're you know you you know your law enforcement. So, but it's very different. It's very primitive, and in a way, and yet it's you know highly desirable, at least to me, having lived my life in cities most of my life. So, I'm just saying that that uh, we have the luxury of this instant contact with people through social media. I'm not very, you know, active in it, although. You know, I correspond all day long. I'm dealing with emails from people all over the planet here every day, and it feels very strange to be even doing a radio show from this remote site. But I think there's value in both things. And, you know, if I were an organization and the only way that I could offer service and support to veterans, you know, was through was through the media, that's the way I would do it. But I think we should support programs that are, that are making, you know, live events available for, for our vets as well. And I also think that brings in the community because I think the more you can integrate well with the community and it's a give and take really becomes the true reintegration. And that's where the adventures come in. If you if you do find people that are in your circle and you feel more comfortable about yourself as a person because you are grounded, then perhaps some of those outside, your neighbors, um, the law enforcement, other civilians around you might also be integrated into your life, making it a really well comprehensive reintegration where everybody talks to everybody, which would be very nice. Yeah, sure would. I would. <clears throat> you have about another minute left. What would you like to share with our listeners? Well, I think the one thing I would share is one of the things we know about suicide prevention is that staying connected with people makes a huge difference in their surviving a crisis and the aftermath of a crisis. Mm -hmm. And so whenever possible, if you know a veteran, whether he or she is at risk or not, you make that connection, you sustain that connection, and you simply stay in touch over time, over Mm -hmm. time. uh, and that means, you know, sending an email, making a phone call. Uh, one thing I've noticed here in the valley, in the mountains, is that dropping by for a visit is, without uh, without telling you, is perfectly okay. People expect that you're just going to drop by when you're traveling through the area. We don't do that much in, in urban society. Anymore. Nobody just shows up at somebody's house, but here they do. And I think if we use the, our social media contacts to outreach people and stay in touch with them and ask them how they're doing and how's this going, and how, it matters that people care about you. Mm-hmm. And you're affirmed in that, knowing that they care about you when they stay in touch with you. And so that's what I would leave with. Uh, with uh, if you know a veteran and and, uh, and have any reason at all, in fact, have no reason at all to call and stay in touch with them and see how their lives are going. That's that's worth. Uh, that's one of the best things you can do to prevent people making attempts on their own lives and becoming isolated and dangerous to themselves. You know, I, I work moving into a period. Um, where a mentor of mine, John Maxwell, is coming out with a book called Intentional Living. And one of the most important aspects of that is intentionally reaching out to others and 
acknowledging them and recognizing them and telling them how important they are to you. So thank right. you so much for joining us again, Paul. Go back to the cabin and enjoy the rest of your fishing day, and we will talk with you again on another future program. You are listening to Military Network Radio. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. This is Toginet, Cutting Edge Radio. Do you want to get a contact high? Tune in for fun, inspiration, and motivation every Friday at noon Eastern Standard Time. Learn how to maximize your mojo and just say no to the status quo. Get inspired and motivated by a fun-loving coach who knows what it's like to get through this thing called life. With your high on life coach, Audra Irwin, each Friday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time and 12 noon Eastern. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Whether it's an anniversary, the holidays, a job promotion, a birthday, an event or party, we have so many wonderful things to celebrate. Usually celebrating involves food, and if you're not careful, you end up eating celebration food that you normally would not eat. Many times we go from one celebration or event to another, and even though it's all good, our healthy eating can get off track. The way to combat that is to make healthy eating a lifestyle. I like the 80-20 rule. If you eat healthy, low-calorie food 80% of the time, it's not a problem to splurge or indulge in not-so-healthy foods 20% of the time. The 80-20 plan works and is a great way to make healthy eating a lifestyle. I'm Annette Hammond. If you're a fan of Fitness Minute, like us on Facebook at Fitness Minute with Annette Hammond. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. <laughs> Used to that. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We are back here with our second guest of the um, morning. We have Dr. Catherine Basham who is the co-director of the doctoral program at the Smith College School of Social Work. And Catherine is a specialist in veterans, uh, all the matters that concern veterans and the doctoral students who are working with them. She's also very deeply involved with couples therapy and reintegration. She works with a lot of the veterans organizations in the Massachusetts area as well as globally, frankly. So welcome to Military Network Radio, Catherine. Thank you very much. Thanks it's for nice to me. have you here. Is this your first radio program? Uh, no. Of course not. Yeah. I, I asked that on purpose because I knew it was not. But <laughs> I'm very pleased that you're on with us um, following Paul Paul's um, interview because we were talking about relationships and mostly about connection. I think you delve into more deeply what the kinds of connections are that really do matter, that resonate, that lower risk. And first, I'd love to start with, how did you get into this aspect of social work? Well, I've actually been in social work now for 40 years, and it occurred to me that I've been working with service members, veterans, and their families throughout that time. Um, I was reared in New York City. Uh, my father served in World War II in the Pacific. Uh, my godfather was a... Um, 
Marine at Guadalcanal, so our oh. family events uh, featured many of the, you know, the important contributions made uh, with military service as well as sacrifice. So um, I was keenly aware, reared in this environment of uh, the combination of both. Uh, and in my social work career, I've uh, worked in direct practice throughout the years, and in the last 20 years, I've been at Smith College School for Social Work, where I actually uh, coordinate many of the services uh, uh, for the masters and PhD students who are they're in internships as we speak all throughout the country. And one of our PhD students is at Landstuhl in Germany at the uh, the Army Medical Center. So. Much of my work is teaching um, as well as research. Perfect. Uh, many of you don't know that we have the Smith College School of Social Work on coming on every other month, talking about their ongoing work with veterans, such as the doctoral student at Landstuhl, such as others that are working with nonprofit veteran organizations, because I think it has become such a wonderful public-private partnership where we are using our resources to help organizations. So it's synergy and it really does make a difference when everybody comes together. When someone comes home from deployment, and Jason can probably address this as well, but Catherine, when you come home from deployment, you do see changes within the family, some of which we're familiar with. There's there's some role changes. There could be PTSD, TBI. There could be nothing at all except the adjustment to coming home and the roles change. But it does have it does make a difference. What are some of the things that you focus on when you're talking to newly returned couples? Because I believe that you do mostly couples therapy. Is that correct? Uh, well, in my practice, I work with individuals, couples, and families. But my okay. current focus is also a research project, um, focusing on an attachment-based couple therapy intervention, and we're assessing the effectiveness of the project um, and the intervention. So we're meeting with a fair number of couples. I, along with uh, three clinicians, are meeting with the couples. So since that's our focus, I'll, I can talk to you a little bit about... You talk uh, to me what, about attachment-based therapy. I'm not sure I know what that is, and I'm not sure our oh. listeners do. Okay, well, maybe we'll start there and then um, head into what some of the issues are that we've been hearing uh, from uh, couples who come into our uh, program. Um, just if you might be familiar uh, with what some of the current models are in working with couples. First of all, what we've found is that in many traditional settings, both in DOD and at the VA, uh, there are efforts to try to work with couples and families, but um, that's not the major priority. The major priority will be the service member or the veteran, uh-huh. um, and the family efforts are occurring often in the community. Um, the two models that are most frequently used now are looking at um, – Thinking and behavior, you know, so it's coping with reduction of symptoms, you know, some of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress, of depression, I imagine, you know, you have been talking about that in the last half hour with uh, Paul about um, ways in which to intervene to help a service member or veteran cope in the world, reintegrate, Mm -hmm. Uh, much less attention to how uh, the integration is occurring with the partner and family. So that's been my focus for the last 10 years uh, and find tremendous support throughout the country in terms of this uh, commitment to try to work with this, uh, this focus. So the, the models then, as I mentioned, if they're talking more about trying to reduce symptoms and shift thinking patterns that are destructive, um, that can be enormously 
valuable for some veterans. Um, you're not bringing in the family yet, though. So um, many of these service members who are suffering from TBI may have difficulty with those protocols that are dealing with uh, trying to dismantle problematic thinking. Um, also, the relationship is not addressed to the same extent. So what we've discovered over the years is that even with ordinary deployments, um, ordinary service, there are inevitable separations and reunions, separations and reunions, and mm -hmm. most of the couples that we have been working with throughout the years um, navigate those, um, those ordinary uh, transitions quite well. Actually, they're very skillful. That's one of the striking areas of resilience with many mm -hmm. of the couples. Um, we talked a little bit about, get back to the, the underpinning of the attachment model, but we're thinking about who are some of the service members and then in the families that suffer the most. Um, because again, I'd like to enforce the idea that um, most couples and families uh, do well in terms of navigating various Very supports. true. Yeah, so I like that as the backdrop. With that said, the couples we're working with are the ones who have experienced derailments. Um, and the what derailments kinds of derailment? Derailments in terms of their sense of connectedness with each other. So okay. often during deployment, post-deployment, there may be a sense of uh, alienation, estrangement, detachment. Post-traumatic stress goes hand in hand with mm -hmm. uh, avoidance and detachment. So if a partner or children do not understand that that's an ordinary adjustment post-deployment, they may feel a sense of rejection, disconnect, uh, alienation, fear, anxiety. Those are just the ordinary adjustments that uh, we can be helpful with um, upon return, on the early return. Mm -hmm. If some of those patterns are not addressed and if the service member or veteran actually is suffering from PTSD or severe depression, then we often see major um, disruptions in connection, attachment, relationship. They usually go so hand in hand. So how do you reattach them? I'm just curious because attachment parenting is one thing. I get that. I'm mm -hmm. not sure how I understand the concept of attachment therapy. So okay. is this to, more where you want me to elaborate? I'll let, I'll let you explain it. Go ahead. Okay. So you want me to just jump right into the therapy? I, I do because okay. It's, okay. it's important that we make it understood to the listeners what that is because to me it's a new word used in mm -hmm. this context. Okay. Well, the attachment-based model that I'm operating with, just to, to be clear, is focusing on attachment as well as other issues for the couple. So that would be uh, some of the ways they're thinking and uh, acting and behaving. So it ties in cognitive behavioral interventions as well as self-care interventions. But the attachment piece is significant when you think of pre-deployment, deployment, post-deployment, post and then think of multiple deployments. Mm -hmm. um, you have a family that is you know, operating with a certain amount of equanimity, stability, connectedness, and then deployment occurs for a period of time. There, there are inevitable needs to be flexible and to adjust and to make those changes and navigate um, the shifts. 
as I mentioned before, if there are ordinary circumstances, um, then we don't run into as much difficulty. If there are major combat stressors that are affecting service member, returning veteran, I'm, I'm combining both, you know, both because we're dealing mostly with um, active duty service members as well mm-hmm. as veterans in this project. Uh, so we're looking at the effect of the deployments. Okay, so what what are some of the steps? We have three minutes until the first break. What are some of the steps you take to provide the reconnection? The reconnection, okay. Well, what I think is crucial is to recognize that we need to engage the couple. So (laughs) we think a lot about cultural responsiveness. We're trying to – it's a relationship-based therapy model. It's culturally responsive. We Mm -hmm. need to be mindful of who they are what has been their military service, what was their experience. And early on, we're talking to whoever is calling the partner or the service member or veteran about what they would like to accomplish, how could we be helpful. We need to establish rapport, uh, particularly as a civilian provider. We need to make certain that we're not acting as an expert in any way. We try to avoid suggesting that we understand everything completely, which, of course, we can't. So empathy, establishing some beginnings uh, of trust is what is crucial between the provider and the couple. That needs the, the initial alliance is absolutely pivotal, and um, maybe we'll be able to talk about that later. You may know, I'm sure you've talked about this on your show, that more than 50% of all veterans um, fail to ever seek services at the VA or vet centers throughout the country. That's a a very, very high number of people who are feeling um, uh, unable or sort of disconnected from the the idea of any type of counseling or therapy intervention that might be helpful to them as couples and families. Um, So the initial establishment of some reasonable trust, I say that because to presume full trust would be completely naive. So that's the beginning connection before there is the opportunity to actually talk to the couple about what they're experiencing. It usually involves asking each of them what their perspectives have been. How are they feeling and thinking about the the homecoming, the return? What was their experience like during deployment? An extended as we call it, it's a biopsychosocial spiritual assessment, which is very elaborate, allows the couple to begin talking. The beginning you know, talking. I, I agree with you on these things, and I would really like to, after the break, we're going on break very shortly, but after the break, I'd like to address the one topic that I hear time and time again, which is a loss of not only connection, but a loss of intimacy. And in a relationship, that can truly change the dynamic. And so mm-hmm. if we could come back after the break and We'll discuss that uh, during the break, but I think that would be very helpful to our listeners. You're listening to Military Network Radio, and we'll be back after this very short break. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. 
After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that you gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central, on toginet.com. Secret Cuisines and Sacred Rituals is a quest, a place, and a feast. Join host Vilasi Venkatachalam every week to explore myths, mystique, old medicine, and brilliant modern solutions through a dazzling kaleidoscope of cuisines, cultures, and cures. This is the place where tribes gather, strangers and familiars, to be memory keepers and makers of our evolving, enduring, evergreen, spoken legacy of wisdom and ingenuity. In Velocity's words, when we do old things in new ways and new things in old ways, we paint with an inspired palette, weave our own healing traditions, and become our own guru. Velocity is a troubadour of secret cuisines and sacred rituals. She collects stories of wisdom in ingenuity, and grit. She believes wellness and transformation happen when you stand at the threshold of delight and discovery. She displays her hidden penchant for drama when she leads the safari at the supper club. Her favorite pastime is to extol the marvels of cuisines, cultures, and cures to her audience in workplaces, seminars, and salons. Her mantra is, be your own guru. She is a biochemist, botanist, and alchemist who likes to churn delightful, useful things from a brew of art and science, ancient and evolving, old medicine, and new cures. Join Velocity every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, only here on the WooHoo Radio Network. Welcome back to Military Network Radio, serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Before the break, we were talking about how connection and attachment and and feeling meaningful to someone matters so much in a relationship. And one of the side effects when there is disconnection and no attachment is a loss of intimacy, which I, I know that we hear questions about all the time. And I wonder if you could address that, Catherine. And then, Jason, I'd like you to relate your coming back home. So, Catherine, first? Yes. Okay. Um, yes, I'd be glad to focus on what, you know, we're hearing from the couples in terms of what their experience is like. Right. Uh, in terms of the disconnect, what we hear regularly is a sense of not being understood often. And I'm focusing on post-deployment. So when right. your loved one's coming back and trying to uh, establish a sense of connection, um, everyone has had different lives, so there's often an expectation, gee, things should be the way they were. Well, everybody's changed, and in some ways, uh, in positive ways, not, and sometimes not so positive ways, but change is inevitable. And there's a sense often of, who is this person? Is this the partner that I used to know? Um, even though I've been maintaining connection throughout the deployment with Skype and other means, who am I partnered with now? So there's a sense of questioning, disbelief. Has everything been lost? It can often be a sense of sadness, regret, 
What have I lost during this period of time? If there are young children, I'm thinking of a couple I worked with recently, um, the, the um, Sergeant uh, Sanchez, um, I'm identifying, but uh, this particular uh, soldier served as medic for 10 months and returned to her 3-year-old, 7-year-old, and 12-year-old. And each of the children were f- suffering in different ways, the thriving during that time, really um, doing well, but then very distressed when mom came back home. Um, the, the older child uh, was basically punching aggressive at school, very frustrated. The seven-year-old started bedwetting. The three-year-old was terrified of her mother. So my mother, returning home, thought, whoa, here I've been away for this period of time and serving in a um, frightening area. My major connections are with my unit, not with my children, not Mm -hmm. with my husband. Often there's a sense of complete uh, loss of connection of being a partner, a mother or a father or a friend or a colleague. Um, That sense of disconnect can be overwhelming for the family members, again, wondering why is my partner more interested in their buddies or the unit than me. Often there's a feeling of rejection. Um, detachment, not wanting to relate to each other, getting into fights, not wanting to be physically intimate, not being sexually intimate. These are all very strong you know, sort of indicators of tremendous distress. I put it that way. It's not pathology. Mm-hmm. It's distress and can readily be um, addressed with sort of adequate support and connection with yeah. uh, counseling. So I have, a, I have a question for you. Um, you know, being in the military and having served overseas, um, you know, I came back from war and, you know, I was completely detached, but I didn't know it at the time, Right. And I think when we talk to a lot of veterans around the country, that story is very much the same, right? Where everything's okay, I'm fine, um, but the behavior's clearly changed. I think intimacy being one of those large, large factors. And, you know, and I look back 10 years later or even four years later after I was deployed, and I'm like, my God, you know, I was clearly detached and clearly not engaged and um, clearly not. Um, trusting my partner or trust even my family members, right? Let alone, um, my partner at the time. So, you know, I guess my question is how does one sort of navigate that water when they don't even know what sea they're in, right? How do you figure out to get to those folks? And, you know, I, I, I mean, we see some of the indicators that you're talking about and so I think those are themes that we hear um, pretty consistently, but mm-hmm. how do you, how do you get to those folks? How do you reach out and touch those folks? How do you get them to walk in your door um, as a couple and as a unit when, you know, they don't even think that door needs to be open? Well, Jason, just for a moment, I was curious. You said, you said it was four years be- until you actually recognized how detached you had been. Yes. What was, how did you become aware I, I think, uh, well, one, I, I was divorced, right? So uh, my wife and I got divorced after I was deployed, um, and I think part of that was due to um, transitioning out of the out of the military and out of um, out of a war zone. And so, you know, being alone and looking back on my life and trying to, to reflect on, um, you know, the successes and failures through that transition, um, it was very clear to me that part of that was this sort of detachment. And I think when you love somebody and you detach yourself from them. Um, it, it hurts, 
I mean, it hurts a lot. And I think um, in ways that we don't necessarily know until after we go through that. So I think those were sort of, sort of some of the high-level thoughts that I had um, a couple of years after my deployment. Yeah, well, I'm sorry to hear that, that 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 what you're describing is what I've heard over and over with many couples who then enter some counseling or treatment um, after divorce, yeah. um, because during those years the estrangement and detachment gets stronger and stronger sure. until there's total breakdown. Yeah. Um, so you're saying how to actually? Were you wondering how we might actually try to reach out to the uh, right? Partner. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. How yeah. do you get through? How do you get through to those folks? How do you get them to walk through your door, knowing that um, yeah, you know, they well, don't necessarily? That... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, what were you going to say? Jason? No, no, go ahead. I was just saying. Yeah. I, I, I think we're talking on the same tune, so go ahead. Yeah, well, I think that um, what, what I've noticed is that it's often the partners who will be then. They are suffering. They don't quite understand what's going on. Uh, they may not have any connection. So usually they are coming through routes other than VA or vet center. I'm focused sure. on veterans for a moment. So what we found is they're, you know, they are, if they have kids, they're in the school system. That's a place to reach out to groups and talk about um, these issues, post-deployment sort of transitions in more ordinary ways so that the family members are informed and educated about what as best as possible about uh, some of the expected shifts and the fact that there's hope that 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 can change that if really sort of worked on in the first several years then there's a much greater chance of avoiding sort of um, marital breakups divorce and onset of all sorts of issues Um, so that's one avenue the others are actual veterans groups going right to the veterans and talking uh, and vet to vet. So we found uh, civilians that will partner with veterans and actually attend. Uh, this coming Thursday, we have a huge event uh, locally. It will be about 900 veterans and service members and family members coming to an expo. It's a work-job expo. But we have introduced a number of uh, seminars and workshops that have to do with taking care of oneself, you know, uh, for those of you who are providers, um, you know, taking care of your loved ones, uh, whether it's your partner or your child who has served, um, you know, different ways of talking, engaging, and step by step by step recognizing that they're, they're entrees into um, uh, really getting relief from some of these difficulties that are, they are uh, readily addressed, you know, with, you know, intervention. So it's getting past, it's also this, um, maybe Jason, you can address that if you would, um, what you found is so many, uh, both partners as well as the veterans, still feel that there's a sense of weakness to have to uh, seek out services. Um, and so it's challenging one's own courage to just you know, step forward and realize that many, many, many uh, veterans and their families uh, deal with these sorts of issues. So did you have any anything to say about that, uh, Jason? Yeah, no, you, you know, it's interesting because I was um, I was transitioning in a time when the services were not well known, right? And I think some of the effects of war, you know, we I, I was literally, I went to combat, deployed in January, we invaded in March, and I was home by fall, right? Because I was involuntarily extended. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that, that tour happened very quickly. We invaded, we turned over the keys and, um, and left. And so, 
you know, it wasn't until years later where some of these trends started to actually surface. And so right. you're sort of completely blind to this. And, you know, the, the world that we live in today, I think we're very well um, acclimated or at least starting to become acclimated to some of the, um, you know, the transitional issues with coming out of the military, let alone transitioning from combat. And so, um, you know, I think looking back on it, you know, there was just no way to actually know. Um, I think now um, there's a lot more resources available. I think to your point, there's a lot more organizations that are trying to reach out and touch veterans. Um, and we have, you know, shows like ours today that's um, trying right. to, to, be, to become a, a more informational sort of fabric across the United States. And I think that's those are some of the important things. Linda, it sounded like you had something you want to jump in there for. Well, I, I think we're all pointing back to the same underlying theme here, which is that to reconnect, one has to be in the presence of someone, to talk to them or reach out to them on social media, to communicate with them, to go to an event. Um, we really cannot, as service people, wait for things to always come to us, although there is outreach, and I believe that it should be outreach combined with the um, person themselves or it is often the spouse, as you put it, Catherine, that really reaches out and says, I don't accept this. I, we were good together. We can be good together again. Let's try. And I, I think it. we all recognize that um, I think there's less of the stigma of weakness as much as it is hope that things can change. So I would love to foment the hope today that there are many ways that you can reach out and Pick up the phone, uh, text someone, go to an event, uh, call a therapist, um, do anything you can to fight for the good things in life because the things that make you want to wake up each day and do things are the connections you make, the significance you feel, and how much you matter. So we just want all of our listeners to know that you do matter. You can reach out. We will be posting some resources after the program. And Catherine, would you have anything left to say? We have about 20 seconds. Um, well, for those of you who are wondering, you know, if, yeah, there is a chance of um, improving your relationship and also reestablishing a way of really thriving together. It's going to be a different way. Right. But I am firmly convinced, that's why I'm having worked with a number of these couples uh, through a period of, uh, it's actually only 12 sessions that they have been able to have a sense of their own uh, rebuilding of trust and um, sort of emotional and real Thank care. you, Catherine. We will be having another show with you in a month and a half. Thank you for listening to Military Network Radio. Okay. Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com. And in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance your...